Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. This morning's passage is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 28. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went on into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of God. Continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, God's chosen people have repeatedly suffered under the heavy hand of oppression. They were slaves in Egypt, cyclically conquered during the period of the judges. They ruled by the waves of wicked kings, overrun by the Assyrians, taken captive to Babylon, subjugated by the Greeks, and ruled by the Romans. They dreamed of the day when God's kingdom would come. When God would vanquish evil, overthrow tyrants, free the downtrodden, banish sickness. Prophets predicted that when Messiah arrived, he would make all things right and all things new. Our dreams are very similar. We live in a broken world dreaming that it could be restored to what it is meant to be. Many of us have worked toward making the world better, but it seems with little effect. It's as though our world is not getting better, but getting worse, with ever-increasing ways to infect our societies with evil. Whether we realize it or not, we all long for God's kingdom. So we should be heartened by Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Let's pray. Our Father, bring this truth 
into each of our lives today so that we might have not only that hope in the future, but the realization of your kingdom within the hearts of believers and the transformation that brings the hope, the joy, the life abundant that you offer in Christ. Amen. Matthew and Luke open their Gospels with nativity stories about Jesus. John begins much earlier, before the beginning of time. Mark opens his book with Jesus fully grown and ready to serve humanity. And as Eric pointed out last week, verses 1 through 3 are preparatory in nature. John the Baptist prepares the world for Jesus, and Jesus is prepared through his baptism and his temptations. Having laid this foundation, Mark presents Jesus to us as the King of Kings, who brings the kingdom. And as we're going to see in our passage that Jesus offers God's kingdom, calls disciples to spread the kingdom, proves his claims by teaching with authority and exercising dominion over the spiritual realm. So accordingly, we're going to explore Jesus' offer, his call, his authority, and his dominion. Jesus' offer. We start in verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, John the Baptist was the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like Old Testament prophets, he called people to repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Like New Testament apostles, he was laying the foundation for Jesus and pointing to Jesus and Jesus' kingdom. After he's arrested, Jesus begins his ministry, proclaiming the time has fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. A new era has come. What people have been awaiting for has arrived. The kingdom of God was near. Now, no single verse in the Bible gives us a clear definition of what is meant by kingdom of God. And so we take various scriptures, we piece them together to gain the best understanding we can. But in its essence, the kingdom of God is the rule of God on earth. And it's going to find its ultimate fulfillment in the kingdom of God that Jesus promises. Isaiah 40 speaks of God coming with power, ruling with justice, making all wrongs right and tenderly shepherding his flock. Jeremiah 31 and 37 speak of God giving us new hearts and the Holy Spirit, his own spirit, to align us with him and his word. And they also foretell of nations coming together in peace and that God himself will dwell among us. God placed humanity in this kind of kingdom where the rule of God would lead our world to thrive. But quickly, humanity dismissed God, turned and went their own way. And that's why we have the world 
that we live in today. And one pastor likens it to a, a five-year-old driving a Ferrari. The car is beautiful. It, it's paradise. It runs perfectly. But when the five-year-old, he, the five-year-old seizes control of the wheel, this beautiful car begins to careen into fire hydrants, skim houses, bump over curves, run over people. It isn't the car's fault. It's the driver. There's the wrong driver. It was meant to be driven by someone who knows the rules of the road and is capable of steering it properly. Humanity took the wheel from God, resulting in the broken world that we see all around us. Jesus announced the kingdom was at hand. God was intervening in history, dwelling among us, offering his lordship to lead us. So you may be asking, if God's kingdom was at hand, why haven't all the wrongs been made right? Why isn't there peace among the nations? Where is the justice that God promised? Mark Strauss answers, the best interpretation of the data is that the kingdom has been inaugurated through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But it awaits consummation in the future. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom as both present and future. Already, but not yet. Now everybody understands, right? <laughs> See, Jesus offers a present dispensation of the kingdom. God's rule in our hearts. And that's in anticipation of the future kingdom where God's rule is over all of creation. The present kingdom brings us personal healing with a view to the eventual kingdom that brings creational healing. The present kingdom brings forgiveness. God working in our hearts to unite us with his heart and his word. The gift of the Spirit who empowers us to live according to God's rule. The Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit, a personal kingdom in a way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Jesus is offering that to everyone, the abundant life and the hope of the future kingdom which can comfort us when we see all the wrongs when we question God we will know that God is not asleep he is long suffering and he will make the world as it was meant to be every wrong will be made right there will be no more suffering and death every tear will be wiped away that's the future the way into God's kingdom, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent simply means change your mind and change directions. We're all headed in one direction away from God's rule. To repent is to change directions toward God, his rule, and his kingdom. When we repent, it's a profound moment of realization 
that we've been living in rebellion against God. And we confess that we've tried to be our own king rather than following him as king. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is news. It's an announcement. And at this point in Mark, his revelation is still being progressing. The good news is that the kingdom has arrived to bring God's kingdom. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul fleshes out the gospel more clearly. It says, Christ died for our sins. According to the scripture, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. Those who believe in the gospel today trust Christ as the one who forgives their sins rather than trusting themselves in trying to work their way to God. We believe that Jesus bore our sins that alienated us from God. And so by taking those sins on the cross, we can now stand before God as though we've never sinned. If this is something new to you, please ask me, Travis, or Eric, and we can help you get a fuller picture that we don't have time to explain right now. So Jesus personally offered the kingdom to four men who would become his disciples, as we read in verses 16 and through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And so Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, and they were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father, Zebedee, in the boat and the hired servants, and they followed him. Jesus entrusted the spread of his kingdom to us. He first chose Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus passed by as they were fishing and mending their nets, and he simply said, follow me. And they did. They left everything behind. They left their possessions, their livelihood, their families. And his disciples would then live with him, and he would pour his life into them. His school didn't have classrooms. It was life-on-life life learning. Those of you who were at the Life on Mission conference might remember one of the slides that was shown. And you had Jesus in front of his disciples. They're out in a field, and they're all sitting at one armed desk taking notes as Jesus taught. And we all laughed at that because we know that is not the way Jesus taught. Rabbis might have taught more similarly to that, but not Jesus. He poured his life into them, and they poured their life into him. They were woven together with Jesus. See, the Christian life isn't about learning more and more theology or learning more and more Bible. The Christian life is melding and mel uh, mending our lives together with Jesus, just as those disciples did. 
So over the next three chapters of Mark, we're going to see how they followed Jesus each step of the way. Tim Keller cites a children's book written by George MacDonald 150 years ago to illustrate what it means to follow Jesus. The book is called The Princess and the Goblin. The protagonist, Irene, is eight years old. She visits an attic in her house, and every so often her fairy grandmother appears. One day, her grandmother gives her a ring with a thread. That thread is tied to it, but it leads to a little ball of thread. The grandmother explains that she's going to keep that ball so that that thread will always lead to her. And Irene says, but I, I can't see it. The grandmother replied, no, the thread's too thin to see, but you, you can only feel it. So if you ever find yourself in danger, take off the ring, put it under your pillow, lay your finger on the thread and follow that thread wherever it leads. Irene was delighted and she felt secure knowing that it would lead her to her grandmother. Her grandmother affirmed this but said, it would lead in a roundabout way. But Irene shouldn't doubt. Don't doubt the thread. Be assured that when you hold the thread, I will hold it too. A few days later, goblins get into her house. Frightened, Irene puts the ring under the pillow, feels the thread, knowing it will lead her to safety with her grandmother. To her dismay, it takes her outside toward the cave of the goblins. Inside the cave, the thread leads her to a pile of stones, a dead end. She thought, at least I could follow the thread backwards, out of the cave. But the instant she tried to feel it backwards, it vanished from her touch. The thread only worked forwards. She began to cry, realizing that the only way forward was to tear down the stones and go deeper into the goblin's cave. She pulls the stones away, causing her fingers to bleed, and soon she hears a voice. It's her friend, Curdy. He was imprisoned by the goblins. She pulls the stones away, tearing them all down, and Curdy asks, how did you come here? And she tells him, her grandmother led her, and now she knows why. When Curdie is freed, Irene begins to follow the thread deeper into the goblin's cave. A confused Curdie warns her, this is not the way out. I couldn't get out that way. I know, says Irene, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. She knew she could trust her grandmother, that it would bring it, her back to her Jesus' disciples followed Jesus, and they found they could trust him. Following Jesus would lead them on paths they never would have traveled, paths fraught with danger. But they found that they could trust Jesus' promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. By following Jesus, the disciples were made fishers of men. See, the, the calling of fishermen 
mirrored their vocation and utilized many of the traits of fishermen. Patience, resilience, courage, persistence, perseverance. Anyone following Jesus needs those qualities. But these qualities didn't make them capable of the task that Jesus gave them. They didn't have the education or the social standing to, to impress people, to draw people to them, or to gain a listening ear. There were countless times in their journey they felt like failures, incapable of fulfilling Jesus' calling. Their frailties didn't matter to Jesus. He made them fishers of men. They didn't make themselves fishers of men. Now, this should encourage every one of us who feels we don't have the qualities, we don't have the capabilities to fulfill what, what Jesus wants of us. doesn't matter to Jesus. He'll be with us. He will make us what he wants us to be if we are willing to follow him. Jesus presented himself as the king, bringing the kingdom. He chose followers who would eventually spread the news of the kingdom. In these next verses, Jesus proves he's worthy of being followed, that he is the king and you can trust he's bringing the kingdom. And he does this by the, the authority he teaches with and then when he exercises dominion over the demons. Verses 20 and 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. See, the scribes were highly respected teachers of the law. They knew the Torah forwards and backwards. Anyone wanting to know how to follow God, how to obey God, they would turn to the scribes. They were professor, moralist, and civil lawyer rolled into one. They impressed their followers with their knowledge, but not with their authority. Their authority was a derived authority. It was their personal interpretation of Scripture, or they would quote the rabbis that were respected. Jesus spoke with an authority like none other. The authority he spoke with was himself. See, even the Old Testament prophets would say, Thus saith the Lord. Jesus said, I say to you. You know, one commentator alludes to the implications of this authority. He wrote, Jesus' words were presented with sovereign authority. It didn't allow for debate or theoretical reflection. His words confronted the congregation with the absolute truth of God and his claim on their whole person. Since Jesus perfectly represents God, he has the right to not only decide what is true, but to demand our decision. See, many of us think highly of Jesus and we consider ourselves followers of Jesus because we promote his values of love, goodness, justice, and grace. Yet we may be at odds with other teaching, his teaching about morality or judgment or hell. 
If Jesus is the ultimate authority, there's no debate. We can't pick and choose cafeteria style what we're going to believe and disbelieve from Jesus' teachings. Jesus has the right not only to decide what is true, but to demand a decision. It's all or nothing. If he is God, everything he says is true. So the kingdom of God was present as Jesus taught in the synagogue. And its aroma enraged the demon. The demon realized that Jesus was a threat to Satan's kingdom. We read in verses 24 and 25. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, the people were astonished at Jesus. They, they had no category for him. He wasn't divine, but he seemed to be much more than man. On the other hand, the demon knew exactly who Jesus is. The Holy One of God. He's not merely a great teacher, prophet, or a Holy One of God. He is the Holy One of God. In the, in the physical realm, we may debate who Jesus is, but those in the spiritual realm, whether angels or demons, they know who he is. And he is above every teacher, prophet, spiritual leader, founder of any religion. He is the Holy One. He is God come in the flesh. So the unclean spirit cried out, What do you have to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? These are fighting words. The demon readied himself for a cosmic confrontation, a war between, not between him and Jesus, but between the satanic realm and Jesus. And we know this because of how the tense, the, the, uh, it changes from singular to plural. The unclean spirit, there's one unclean spirit in the man, but he says, have you come to destroy us, plural? The demon knows Jesus has come for all of them. So he immediately goes on the attack by naming Jesus, the Holy One, as though this was an incantation that would give him power over Jesus. See, culturally... When wanted to, one wanted to exercise power over another, they would name them. And so that's what the demon's doing here, trying to gain the upper hand by revealing Jesus' name. It was a big mistake. We read in verse 26, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. It only took one command from Jesus to exercise the demon, revealing his dominion over the spiritual realm. The exorcism amazed everyone. They, they had never experienced anyone comparable to Jesus, a man who taught with authority and exercised power over demons. Jesus proved that the kingdom of God was at hand. As he said in Matthew 12, 28, but if it is 
by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We still wrestle with spiritual forces. Satan wants to tempt us. He wants to destroy us. He wants to malign the name of Christ through us. But the victory has been won. The kingdom of God is here. We're no longer under the dominion of Satan when we're in Christ. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus initiated his ministry by declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. He immediately chose disciples who would spread the kingdom. He taught the truths of the kingdom in the synagogue with authority, and he verified his authority by casting out a demon. The people were amazed, and Jesus' fame spread throughout the region of Galilee. Now that's a welcome response. It's far different from the response of Simon, Andrew, James, and John. They were willing to leave everything behind to follow Jesus wherever his thread would lead them. And they could trust him because Jesus left everything behind to live among us and to follow God's thread for him. That thread led him on a path of hardship, rejection, suffering, humiliation, and unbearable physical, emotional, and spiritual agony. It led him to the cross where he bore the condemnation we deserve, freeing us from the prison of sin and death. If he did that for us, we can trust him to care for us wherever our thread leads. Remember, the cross was not the end of his journey. Three days later, he rose from the dead in glory, and the thread led him back into the arms of his father. And that assures us that we can trust him wherever our threads lead, whether through swamps, valleys, or caves. It will eventually lead us into the everlasting loving arms of God, resulting in his glory and ours. Let's pray. Lord, we can never fathom what you went through to bring us not only into the kingdom, but into the arms of the Father. So we thank you and praise you for your love, for your sacrifice. May it be always at the center of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.